When I was in high school, I volunteered to be a counselor at a church camp in Springfield. And it was super fun. It was a junior high week, and I got to be a counselor there and lead a small group throughout the week. Um, And I gained the respect of one particular junior high boy really quickly because he double-dog dared me to eat a Cheeto off the ground, and I totally did it. Got his respect like that. And this boy, he was so sweet, but he, he had never been to church camp before. He'd actually never been in a church before. He kind of came from a rough background and ended up making a friend at school, and that friend invited him to come to church camp. So he was learning tons about who God is, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for him. Um, and he came to me like halfway through the week and said, you know, Liv, I've been, I've been learning a lot about who Jesus is, and I... I want to give my life over in baptism. And I was like, yes, this is why we do this. I'm so excited for you. And so we talked through it a little bit, and me and my high school self, I'm trying to, you know, explain baptism to him. It's a little bit complicated, as I've learned getting older. But so I'm explaining it to him, you know, Jesus died for our sins on the cross. He rose again. And in baptism, you know, we're, we're mimicking what he does. We die to self we're raised in new life in Jesus. And the whole time I'm talking, this kid is staring at me, you know, big old saucer eyes, like, okay. And he tears up a little bit as I'm talking. He's like, yeah, I want, I want to do this. I'm like, great, cool. So fast forward to the end of the week of camp, and he and I are in the pool, and we're ready to bapt- get him baptized. Um, and he's just shaking like a leaf next to me, just like vibrating. And I'm like, dude, are you okay? Well, I, I didn't really lean down to him because he's a junior higher, so we're the same height. So I'm like, hey, are you okay, man? He's like, yeah, yeah, I want to do this. I'm like, great, okay, so we say the confession of faith, and I go and I dunk him, and I'm like, you're dead to sin, boom, under, alive in Christ, raise him up, everybody's clapping, yay. I go for the church camp counselor high five, and he's just standing there shocked. And I'm like, what's going on? He gives me this huge hug, and he says, I thought you said I was going to have to die. This kid fully expected to go under the water and for me to like drown him, I guess. And that's on high school me. I guess I just didn't explain it well enough. But what stuck with me about this story for years and years is that he still did it, right? Faith was something that was more to this kid than just believing in Jesus in his mind. Faith was something that said, I believe in you, Jesus. I believe in the power of Jesus to do something impossible. That when I go down, even if I die, I know that Christ will bring me back up. That stuck with me because faith was real to this kid, like really real. He was willing to literally die for Jesus. You know, sometimes faking it is easier than the real thing, isn't it? It's much easier to say with our mouths that Jesus is Lord than to live that with our lives. And to live like nothing has changed for us, even after baptism, even after saying that we believe in Jesus. But it all becomes evident in the end because the difference between real faith and fake faith, as we're going to learn today in our text, is about inconsistencies. And I believe that the book of James calls us to real, active faith over and over again. As we continue in our series through the book of James, it's important to remind ourselves of the temptation to forge our own faith. James is writing to a group of Christians whose faith has become fake to the detriment of their church and to their own personal lives. 
So as you flip in your Bibles or open your apps up to James 1, where we're going to be starting our reading for today, I just want to do a few things really fast. So first of all, let me introduce myself. My name's Olivia. It's nice to meet you guys. I volunteer here at first, and I'm married to the wonderful Aaron Hayes. He's the best, right? Yeah, aw, you can clap for him. I love him. He's good. And uh, I used to work at a church for about six years. I left that position to pursue a job in the nonprofit world. So I work as the executive director of a nonprofit in Springfield. And we are called the James Project. We work with foster kiddos and foster families through providing housing and direct support and mentor services. I love what I get to do. If you want to talk more about fostering or about the James Project, you hit me up. I would love to do that. The other thing I want to talk about real quick is I want to remind us of the main idea in James's letter, and it's this. Faith is only as legitimate as it is expressed. Our faith in Jesus is made tangible in what we do for Jesus. And as we will see today, the genuine faith reflects a change of heart within us, as well as a change of action towards others. So let's get into it. Let's start the day by reading James 1, 19 through 25. It says this, My dear brother and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgiving, forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So right off the bat, James is giving us some clues on how to live wisely in the world, right? We kind of discussed this last week a bit, that a wise person is someone who is living in God's world through God's way, living in God's world God's way. He says a few things. He says, be quick to listen, be slow to speak, be slow to become angry, and above all, be doers of the word, not just listeners, right? Right? I don't know about you, but when I read this verse, I've got some questions, yeah? So maybe like, what is the word that we're talking about? And what does it mean to be a doer of the word? You know, the word, when I hear it at least, I think of the Bible, yeah? But the original hearers and listeners and readers of James's letter, they don't have the Bible like we have it. So what do they mean by the word? Well, it's kind of given to us in verse 21 of this text. It says, the word that was planted in you, able to save you. That sounds a lot like the, the actions of Jesus, right? So they're talking as the word is equal to the gospel of Christ, the good news of Jesus. So then what does it mean to be doers of the gospel, of the good news? I believe it's about this. Being doers of the gospel is about transformation. Transformation of self and transformation of the world by the power of God himself. It's about becoming, becoming more and more like the God who saved us, more and more like his character as we live in this world. James gives us some practical ways that we can do this later in the letter, but for now, let's just sit with this idea. Listening to the word of Jesus 
and doing the works of Jesus belong together. You can't divorce them from one another. And we need to do this work of Jesus in our life, right? We need to have a life that reflects transformation and change. Because this section of scripture, it shows us a little bit about our tendencies, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but when I heard, be quick to listen, you know, slow to speak, I don't do that very well. And I think a lot of us don't naturally do that well. You know, when Eric and I were talking about the ideas of this week, a video came to mind for him, and I think it's so perfect, and I think you'll see why, too, when we're talking about being quick to listen, slow to speak. So let's watch this really quick. Like, I'm listening to me, listen to me. Like, like I do this all the time, and if I go out at the, at the house with the door, Matthew has his toys, and then Matthew has all his toys. Okay. But I have to yell at you guys. Okay, what? Like everything they do at this house, they can't touch everything at Grandma's house. Okay. Okay, then what? Then you're not listening to me. Then you're not listening to me. I asked you. <laughs> Linda, listen. Listen, Linda. I love that video so much. <laughs> It's in our nature to want to defend ourselves, right? To want to jump into the conversation, to wait to like literally the second that someone stops talking so we can jump in with our two cents, right? That's just how we're wired. But our ability to listen to others and listen to God says something about our heart posture, doesn't it? Because both of those things put others before ourselves. Being quick to listen and slow to speak shows that we're listening to what someone else is saying. When we listen to God, we're able to know what he wants us to do. When we listen to others, we're able to respond better to them because we, we know what their needs are because we've been attentive to that. Listening is the first step of faith. But as James clearly says, it doesn't stop there. When we truly accept the word of Jesus, the truth of the gospel, when we begin to act on it. So listening first, then action. It's the step beyond listening. The step that positions you before Jesus in humility so that it can start to affect everything about your life, not just your ears, but your heart and your hands too. James says, don't merely listen so as to deceive yourselves. To think we can hear the word of God without doing anything in response is to live deceived. James sets up an illustration for us perfectly in his text. He says, listening to the good news of Jesus and then doing nothing with it is like someone who looks in a mirror and then upon leaving that mirror just totally forgets what she looks like. James says that if you've listened and looked into the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, which brings freedom and transformation, and then you forget what that looks like and you continue to live in the same patterns like nothing has changed, you're a fool. Let's take this analogy a step farther because looking into a mirror, it tells us who we are, doesn't it? When you look intently at a mirror, what do you see? Maybe you look in front of you and you see your flaws, you know? Maybe you look in front of you and you think, man, I like my outfit today, I look cute. Maybe you look and you see your past. Maybe you look and you see all the things you want to do in the future, but whatever you see, what you believe about who you are changes what you do. 
James has just told us to be transformed by the saving gospel of Jesus. It literally changes everything about your life. But sometimes we look at ourselves and we forget that Jesus has changed anything. We look at ourselves and we see our past self, our old self, the self that we've put off, all the things that we've done, and we don't realize that Jesus calls us to live changed into this new identity he's given us. So, who do you see in the mirror? Do you see a mess? Something that can't possibly be cleaned up? Let me tell you today that Jesus has made you new. Do you see unholiness? Something that can't be cleaned by God. Let me tell you that Jesus has declared you righteous today. When you look in the mirror, do you see brokenness? All these pieces that can't possibly be put back together, God. You don't know what I've done. Let me tell you that Jesus has made you whole. Do you see sinfulness? The good news of Christ is that Jesus has declared you forgiven, a child of God. We no longer have to live with the old. We are in the new if you look at a mirror and realize who you are in Jesus, but go away unchanged, you're acting like a fool. You're deceived. It's like going to a restaurant when you're starving. You go in, you're absolutely starving, you sit down, but you refuse to order anything, even though you speak the language of the waiter. You have the money to buy the food. You're physically starving, but you choose to do nothing about your hunger. It doesn't make any sense, right? And that's what James is saying through this. It doesn't make any sense to hear the word, to be transformed by the gospel, to see who you are in Jesus, and to do nothing with it. Because our position, it dictates our practice. What you believe about who you are changes what you do. The more intently we look into God's word, the more we see ourselves as we really are in Jesus, the more God shapes us into his image. And James writes to this community of believers to remind them of this, to remind them that hearing the gospel isn't complete until you've changed how you live. And for the community that James is writing to, they have a specific issue that they're dealing with. So let's read on, let's figure out what that issue is. James 2 says this, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in old filthy clothes comes in as well. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, well, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing it right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So what is the specific issue that we see here? Did anybody catch it? 
Favoritism. Everybody said it at once. Amazing. Good job. Favoritism. So what is favoritism, you ask? Well, it tells us in the text, a rich visitor came and he got a higher position, a higher seat than a poor regular in the church. And this is opposite of what James quotes later as the royal law of scripture, to love your neighbor as yourself. It's in complete contradiction to that idea, isn't it? It's not hospitality, but it's an act of hostility based on material wealth. And I think one thing that James is getting at in this, in this example is that favoritism, to show favoritism, is to be inconsistent in your faith. And earlier, you know, we kind of defined that real faith and fake faith can be differentiated because of the inconsistencies. And favoritism is one of those inconsistencies. It's not the only inconsistency, but it's one of them. And it's the one that James is writing about to his community. Specifically, favoritism of the rich over the poor. But there can be a lot of different kinds of favoritism in the church, right? Maybe it's favoritism of yourself over other people. You know, we all live in America where it's very individualistic. It's very easy to make yourself the priority, your needs, your wants, your desires over other people. Maybe it's favoritism of married people over singled people in the church. Or favoritism of people who vote the same way as you or act the same way as you over people who don't. The list could go on and on and on about what favoritism could look like, but the thing that's important is that even in our inconsistencies, grace is consistent. Grace does not care what your bank account says. Grace doesn't withhold itself based on your marital status. Grace, it doesn't matter what house you have, what car you drive, what job you work. Grace is consistent and it doesn't change. And that's why favoritism of any kind is against the will of the kingdom of God. We are all called to God by grace indiscriminately. And in grace, we remember that salvation compels us to consistently surrender our inconsistencies. Because we're all inconsistent people, are we not? You know, there's this awesome story of this guy named Behan Mutlu. And I don't know if you read about this in the news. It was pretty recent. But he's a guy from Turkey. And one day, he went out with his friends, got a little too toasty, drank a lot, and ended up walking away from his group of friends at this party. So he walks away, and his wife gets really worried because he doesn't come home that night. He doesn't text or call. He is just gone. So she files a missing person report. Well, Behan, he falls asleep somewhere in the city, wakes up, and realizes that there's a search party going on around him. He's like, oh, I'll join the search party. I'm a good guy. So he marches along with the search party for a while. About 30 minutes in, he realizes that they're looking for him. And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm Behan. That's me. I'm Behan. Hey, you can stop looking. We found me. It's good. But everybody was like, you're not Behan, just this hungover dude. So he finally, after an hour more of searching, they show the wife his picture, and she's like, yep, classic Behan, there he is. He's been searching for himself for the last hour and a half. <laughs> you know, when we look in the mirror, we need to know who we are. But mirrors also reflect something out, don't they? Other people need to know who we are, too. Others need to see the reflection of Jesus in us 
If you see the goodness of God at work in you, which I pray, pray, pray that you do, other people need to see that too. Surrendering our inconsistencies is how we begin to look more like Jesus. So what might you need to surrender today? Maybe it is the issue of favoritism. Maybe that's convicting you right now, and you feel like you need to surrender that issue to God. Maybe it's something different, though. Maybe you need to surrender, you know, the belief that Jesus belongs to a particular political party. Maybe you need to surrender your own bitterness, your own anger. Maybe you need to surrender gossip or jealousy. Maybe you need to surrender the parts of your schedule that aren't making Jesus a priority in your life. Because the truth of the matter is we can all live inconsistently. That's a reality for us. We can say Jesus is Lord without there being any evidence of Jesus as the Lord of our life. We can say I love God and raise our hands in worship without a hint of loving God made evident through our actions in this world. If there's no action beyond the claims, the claims are useless and they'll leave you empty and deceived and foolish. And James really drives this home as he continues in the last text that we're going to read for today. So let's read on. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith even save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical need. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good, but even the demons believe that and shudder. You know, sometimes we view this passage to be in opposition with what we feel like we've been taught our whole lives if you've kind of grown up in the church. I think of like Ephesians. Ephesians says, for it's by, the, by grace you have been saved by faith, not through works so that you can boast, but through the gift of God. It feels confusing, doesn't it? Like, which is it? Are we saved by grace? Are we saved by works? How do those things go together? But we often forget that even in the Ephesians passage I just quoted, there's another part to it. The next verse in Ephesians says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. See, Jesus in his death and burial and resurrection, he's destroyed every barrier that keeps us from God. The power of sin, the power of evil, death itself, so that we could have full life, inheritance, and blessing in him. Everything in scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, points to Jesus, how he has saved us, how he's freed us, how he's ransomed us. By his grace. It's all because of his great grace, but it doesn't stop there. We're not just going to be transported out of this life into heaven, sitting on clouds, playing harps, and eating cream cheese. No, Jesus has saved us for something more than that. He saved us so that we can make him known in this world. He saved us so that we could be examples of his character and his kingdom of heaven being brought here right now. It's not just for the future, it's for here. 
in this world. He saved us so that we could give him glory by being the people of God, doing his good works here. He saved us so that we could be known for helping the poor, loving one another, giving generously, listening well. These are the things we're to be known by. We're saved by grace so that we can work to do and to be transformed in the doing. There's a really cool, fancy, big word for that. It's called sanctification. It's the work of God in us as we become more and more shaped into his image. You know, I really, really respect the preaching here at first. I love it. And I'm not just saying that so that they let me keep preaching here. I promise. They're really, really good at preaching hard truths to us, right? They don't sugarcoat it. They're not going to fluff it up. But it's an act of love from the preaching at, uh, here at first, right? We love you guys too much to let hard truths go unspoken. And this is one of those hard truths because James says that the difference between a demon and a Christian is not whether or not they believe. It's not whether you've checked all the boxes, you know, do I believe in Jesus? Have I said the confession of faith? Check. Do I believe in the triune God? Check. Do I believe that Jesus died and rose again for my sins? Check. It's not that. The difference between a demon and a Christian is not whether or not they believe. Rather, it's what they've done with that belief. You see, real faith is trusting in God enough to do what he says. I think there's a series of questions that we can ask at this point to kind of help drive this point home for us. We'll start with a simple question. Simple question. Can just a profession of faith alone save you? Simple answer. No. Even the demons believe. Okay, a more complicated question now. But if you're saved by grace and faith and not by works, how come James teaches something that seems completely different? There's a more complicated answer here. James isn't preaching something different. In fact, these things go together because the grace that does not change your life cannot save your soul. And I think all this leads to a key question for us. What do you gain by claiming to have a saving faith when there's nothing to demonstrate its presence in your life? Where's your heart at in that? What's the point of grace over sin if we're not able to prove the grace we have is actually changing us? You know, this, this illustration won't really work for, uh, for my husband because he can play all the instruments, but just because I own a guitar or I own a piano doesn't make me a musician, right? And I think that probably works for most of us, minus Aaron. We'll forget about him for a second. Being able to produce a melody or mimic a song or lay down a sick beat, that makes you a musician. It's the same with faith. Because a workless faith is a worthless faith. But there's no faith without grace. The greatest and most heartbreaking inconsistency of all is to claim Jesus as Lord of your life, but not actually live any differently than before. Because get this, active faith requires faithful actions. Active faith requires faithful actions. Jesus has made it clear. He calls us to live into our new identity in him. He says, 
Live as I lived as best as you can. Love as I loved as best as you can. Obey God as I obeyed God as best as you can. Surrender your life as I've surrendered mine. Not because it earns you anything, but because it's who I've called you to be. In my short time at first, I've seen you guys answer that call over and over again, whether it's providing supplies and food for the teachers and students at Wiley Elementary or even seeing, you know, the launch of the Urbana campus and now it's at three services. That's awesome. Really cool. But here's the thing. You don't need to wait for the church to have active faith. It's not just a Sunday thing. It's not just a small group thing. You and your family can have active faith outside of this building, outside of what the church programs. And the question is not, will God ask me to do something? It's, will I be actively faithful when he inevitably does? When God calls you to do something radical, will you? When God calls you to do something countercultural, will you? When God calls you to do something simple, will you do it? Because the fruit of faith is not intellectual knowledge. It's faithful action. It's like the little boy who I baptized who thought he was literally going to die. He thought he was going to die, but he still acted. He still went under the water, convinced that Jesus would bring him back up. He was faithfully acting in a God who could change everything for him. He could even change death itself. You know, I'm going to have us do something as we wrap it up today. Something a little weird. Don't worry. You'll be fine. I'm going to describe some broad scenarios, things that you can do in your community to have active faith, active expressions of faith in our community. And as I do that, I'm just going to have you close your eyes. It'll be weird, but it's cool. We'll all do it. Most of us will do it. Close your eyes, and I want you to envision yourself doing these things, being active, faithful people in your community as I describe these broad scenarios. Picture where you are, who you're with, what are you feeling. Take a mental snapshot for later. And as I list these scenarios, just know that they're probably going to be with outside of this church building and outside of your own house even. So just trust me for a second and go ahead and close your eyes right now. I'll describe five scenarios for you. Just envision where you are in this. You're walking around your town. You're actively meeting the needs of the powerless and the impoverished in your community. Who are you with? What are your hands doing? How are you serving? being present with someone in need. You're providing comfort for someone who is grieving. Who are you with? What are you saying to them? How are you loving them well? supporting families that you know who are fostering and adopting and taking
taking care of the vulnerable in your town? Who are you with? What do you feel? What are you doing to serve them? You're being generous with your time. You're connecting with those who society feels doesn't deserve company. Who are you with? Where are you located? How are you showing the love of Jesus? You're at your table with your family in your home. At Thanksgiving dinner, someone says something that you strongly disagree with. Who do you see in front of you? How do you respond to them? How can you be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to be angry? How can you love your family well? Okay, you can open your eyes. What did you see in your mind? Maybe you found yourself talking with a friend or meeting a homeless person or visiting a nursing home or sitting next to someone who's hurting. Whatever it is, whatever God was speaking to you, don't just listen to it. Go do it. So what do you need to go do? Let's actively respond together right now. Let's stand. We'll continue singing today.